You will join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. If you are using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text this morning on page 961. 1 Corinthians 15. We are going to be looking at verses 12 through 22. And the title of our sermon this morning is Foolish Faith or Resurrection Life. And our key words for worshipers in training are resurrection, gifts, and faith. Well, earlier this week I was flying home from Amsterdam and I watched a fascinating movie on the flight called Gold. And it was based on the true story of the rise and fall of the Briex Mining Company. Uh, After the death of his father, Kenny Wells was left to keep his family's mining company going, and uh, he kept coming up short. They were sending out uh, people to try and find new places to mine, and they could not find any valuable natural resources worth mining. And over time, he spent all of the company's money, and then he spent all of his money trying to find the right place to hit it big, and nothing was panning out for Kenny at all. So in a last-ditch effort, he gets in touch with a man that he had heard of named Michael Acosta. And Michael Acosta had previously found major copper uh, deposits in Indonesia. And he had talked about how he assumed there were places in Indonesia where they could find uh, great, uh, vast quantities of gold. So Kenny scraped together all that he could to fund an expedition and a gold dig Um, in Indonesia. So night after night and week after week, they were looking for gold and they tested the ground as it was being pulled out and they continued to find nothing. They kept going. Eventually, half of their work crew quit altogether. Uh, Kenny had a near-death experience with malaria and when he had recovered enough to know what was going on, he finally received the report he was hoping for. They found gold. And not just some gold. This was likely going to be the largest gold find in the history of the modern world. Nobody had seen this amount of gold before in a single location. And so overnight, they went from being almost dead and bankrupt to being the most popular stock on the stock market of the decade and to being the most highly sought-after partnership on all of Wall Street. And the reports kept coming back better and better, and people were investing all that they had in Briex, and the stock moved from a penny to almost $300 a share. Another mining company offered to buy them out for $300 million and take it over, but they turned it down completely because they knew it wasn't worth millions, it was actually worth billions of dollars. However, there was a problem. An investor sent an independent company to do some sampling of the mine that was going to be the biggest gold find in the world, and there wasn't actually any gold there at all. It turned out that Michael Acosta was doing what's called salting the samples, which simply means as samples were being pulled out of the ground, he was salting gold flakes into those samples before they were sent off to an independent lab to get checked for gold content. But you see, the gold wasn't coming out of the ground. It was coming from something like a salt shaker. So in an instant, the company that everyone believed was worth billions of dollars was taken off the New York Stock Exchange completely and was not worth a single penny. 
Billions of dollars were lost, and before it was all found out, Acosta skipped town and left Kenny trying to answer for something he had no idea about. He, more than any of his investors, was devastated. He didn't just lose his company and all of his wealth. He lost someone he thought was his friend as well. Now, as I thought about that, I wondered if we have ever invested our lives in something so thoroughly and so completely that it literally took all of our resources and all of our time and all of our effort and all of our energy, and at some point we were struck with the news that everything that we've put into it was completely and totally worthless and meaningless. Remember all the people who lost their wealth, their retirement, uh, when Enron was exposed for fraudulently dealing with their retirement funds? Or how about... Bernie Madoff was outed for creating the largest Ponzi scheme ever known. What happens? Well, one minute, everybody thinks that everything is better than great and they're set for life and nothing is to worry about. And then the next minute, they're trying to figure out where they're going to get money to pay for their next meal. Literally, in a single moment, from millions to zero. Now, perhaps you haven't lost millions of dollars, but... Have you ever staked your life on something else that turned out to be a complete and total scam? You thought it was something great. You you realized, though, in the end, that it was the worst thing you ever could have been involved in. A lot of people will tell you in this world that believing in Jesus is the same sort of thing. Believing in Jesus changes how you live your life completely. How you act, how you think, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, uh, everything changes. And yet they'll tell you Jesus isn't there and he's not doing anything, so everything we do as Christians is a complete waste of time and resources. And here's the thing that I want to point out to those people who say such things. The Bible actually agrees with them. That if what they're saying is true, if what they're saying is true, then indeed we are completely wasting our time. More specifically, if Jesus Christ died and was buried and was never raised from the dead, everything we do is a complete and total waste of time and resources. And really, how can we not agree with that? People give their lives to all kinds of things, and we sort of shake our heads at those things, wondering what and why they would go down such roads. You know, people think that about Christians, and their argument is fair. The Bible grants that. However, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're all fools, and we should all go home and do something else with our time and our effort. If you're a Christian this morning, we have to ask that question. Do we have a foolish faith? But if you're not a Christian this morning, there's a question you have to ask. Is there something to all of this that means that you could possibly be living a life, a resurrection life that is abundant? What do you think? Are Christians complete and total fools looking for gold where it doesn't exist? Or was there a glorious, magnificent resurrection of Christ from the dead? Those are the only two options we have. So let's see what the text says for us this morning, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man who uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, I want to consider, brace yourselves, seven points this morning. I promise this won't be any longer than usual. Six of the points I'm going to make We're going to look at and consider what Paul says that we must conclude if there is no resurrection at all. And the final thing we will consider is what if it is true that there is a resurrection from the dead? Do we have a foolish faith or are we living resurrection life? Let's reason together and keep your Bibles open because we're going to be moving around to various places in the text as we go along. Well, the first thing we're going to ask and look at is if there is no resurrection, preaching, Paul says, is in vain. Look again at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Have you ever thought, have you ever actually stopped to think about preaching and what it is? Now, obviously, I think about it every week. I think about it every single day because no matter what day of the week it is, the next Sunday is uh, very quickly on the horizon. But really, it is an odd sort of thing, preaching is. In days gone by, public proclamations in public places were more common as a form of communication and even uh, served as entertainment in numerous cultures. People would gather, thousands of people would gather in coliseums and they would listen to famous orators give speeches for hours at a time and they were very entertained by all of this. Uh, Even up until the invention of the television, families would often gather around the radio to listen to stories of uh, or the news uh, together as they as they heard someone speaking the words over the radio. So public spoken words were an important part of everyday life for most of human history. But even still, in the eyes of the world, since the very beginning of the church, the world has thought it foolish that the message of God. The word of life was to be proclaimed through preaching. Paul mentions this very thing back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. But the point is heightened to consider to an even greater extent here, namely that if there is no resurrection from the dead, our gathering together like this right now to listen to preaching is in vain. It is useless. It is a waste of time. In terms of our allocation of time and resources, we could choose a lot of other things to do that would be more productive and more entertaining in the end. 
Because we may be just listening to someone talk about something or things that aren't even true and don't mean a whole lot to anybody at all in the long run. And preachers, we spend a lot of time preparing sermons every week. And Christians spend a lot of time listening to them and discussing them and thinking about them and and seeking to apply them and the principles of those sermons uh, in their lives. So what if there is no resurrection? Well, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, what is the point? Why are we doing all of this? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a central issue in the Christian faith. Earlier in chapter 15, in verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice Paul lists three things there, and he says these three things together make up what is of first importance. He's not saying for the Christian that this issue of the resurrection is, not, is, is something that we can take or leave. It's not something that's added to the essential things that we need to believe. So if you don't believe it, it's a really big deal. This is what Paul is saying is of first importance. In other words, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then you can't really call yourself a Christian because this is one of a handful of issues that we consider to be essential to the faith. And so if the resurrection didn't happen, the very thing that's being proclaimed as of first importance is of no importance at all because it's a lie. So standing up and saying, thus say the Lord, about a lie, that's an exercise in futility. It's a worthless endeavor that we should do away with because it doesn't mean anything. It's laughable. There are far more entertaining things to do with our time than to listen to someone preach or to sit down and prepare sermons if all of this is a lie. So that's the first thing. If there is no resurrection, preaching and hearing preaching is all in vain. The second thing Paul tells us, if there is no resurrection, faith in Christ is worthless. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In the second part of verse 14, he says, your faith is in vain. And 17, uh, the end of uh, first part of 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Jesus Christ died and was buried and was not raised from the dead, Our faith is an act in futility. And the implications of this, not just on Christianity, but on every religious system in the world, are significant. Most people don't want to think about this because of what it will do to their worldview if they just apply some simple logic. But it's something the Bible is actually very honest about, and we're seeing it in the text right here. If what you believe is false, your faith is worthless. In fact, not only is it worthless, it is deadly because it doesn't lead to life. And so in reality, life stinks, you die, the end. That's it. That's worthless. That's deadly. But we hear the contrary all the time, right? There's two main things you'll hear. 
The first is from meaningful Christians. And they will say something like, if I believe in Jesus Christ, and in the end I die, and find out nothing about Christianity is true, I haven't lost anything. But if you die and find out that everything about Christianity is, tr- is true, then you've lost everything. Well, what's the problem with that? Have you ever rented a car before? And after you give them a vial of blood and provided fingerprints of the last 14 generations of your family members, they get to this place where they tell you, now listen, in the unlikely event that you get in an accident, there's no possible way that the accident will cost anything near what even Bill Gates could afford, so we're going to want you to pay an additional $150 a day for our insurance plan. You're really going to want to do this. And they sort of try to back you into a corner to buy their insurance, and they make you feel really guilty when you say no. But isn't this exactly the thing that that well-meaning Christian is saying? Hey, look, you can risk it if you want to, but I'm just going to tell you straight. I want to make sure all my bases are covered in the end. So just in case things are the way the Bible says they are, I'm going to believe in Jesus. In other words, I want to have faith insurance. But how does Paul answer that? What does Paul say in verse 14? He doesn't say you should believe in Christ just in case. No, he says if you believe and none of it's true, it's all in vain. It's worthless. It's useless. It's completely unnecessary. So that's what some meaningful, uh, you know, well-meaning Christians will say, but also secular people will say something about all of this, and they'll say, you believe in Jesus? That's nice. He makes you a different person? That's great. I'm so glad that works for you. I think that all religious beliefs are equally valid, and so I think everyone should just believe in whatever works for them. But wait. Wait. Paul is saying here that if there is no resurrection from the dead, Christianity is not nice. And if it doesn't work for you, then it does the exact opposite of what this person is saying. Because if Christ is dead and gone, then when you die, then you're also dead and gone as well. Not forgiven, not living eternal life, gone forever. So here we see the fundamental folly of false religion, don't we? If you believe wrongly, you ultimately don't actually know that until it's too late, right? At the end of life, you might be thinking, oh, this Scientology stuff, this is great. It's working. It's wonderful. And then you say, oh, well, I'm being eternally judged because I didn't acknowledge the God that I knew profoundly through all that he has revealed of himself to include the gospel that I've heard proclaimed countless times. I was a happy Scientologist, but now I am an eternally damned Scientologist. So you see, if you're holding on to something like, well, my faith is really good for me right now. It makes me feel better. It gives me meaning. It gives me purpose. But then in the end, you die and go to hell? What good is your faith? It doesn't work at all. So the issue can never be, does it work for you? Does it make you happy? That's nice. 
that's great. No, that's subjective nonsense. I had a family tell me years ago when I first became a pastor, she said, you know, I don't care what my kids, my cousin, I don't care what my kids believe in, but just that they believe in something. Now, I'm sure there are limits to that statement. It wasn't well thought out because those whatever-you-want-to-believe statements, if, if their beliefs included sacrificing their parents on an altar, I've got to think that their whole premise is going to be questioned a bit. But think about how ludicrous that statement is. In the end, it's like saying, I don't care how you decide to go to hell. I just want to make sure you pick a way to do it. Listen, faith cannot be a subjective thing. We're not playing games here. It is objectively rooted in the question, will this that I'm believing in get me through the grave? And if the answer is no, because there is no resurrection from the dead, then the faith is pointless. It's in vain. That's exactly what the Bible says here in very clear terms. I appreciate the honesty, and in fact, you're not going to find any religion, any worldview of the world that is going to say the same thing. But the Bible is so confident in what it proclaims as true that it challenges you to, challenges you to think about what if it is false. Well, the third thing, if there is no resurrection, we misrepresent God. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if we say that God has raised Christ from the dead, but he really didn't, we lie about God. We misrepresent God. We are bearing false witness about God. And to lie about God is a deadly business. What does it mean when we lie about God? It means we're false teachers. It means that we're saying God is someone or is doing something that is not true at all. And if I'm doing and and saying something that's not true while I stand here, and I say, this is what God says, this is what God has done, and it's not true, then I'm a false teacher. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he writes that anyone who lies about God should be pronounced accursed. Literally, Paul is saying, let those who lie about God be damned. I mean, think about it. God created me. God sustains me. God gave me life and breath and every such thing that is needed, and then I just get to lie about him and expect that not to be a cosmic problem? No. Paul, again, is a lot more honest about this than the seculars want to be and well-meaning, misinformed Christians want to be. Lying about God is not okay. And if we are lying about God, we have a big problem, and that problem needs to be dealt with because God doesn't take our lying about Him lightly. The third commandment proves to us that His name is very important to Him. And this means not that we just don't use His name as a curse word, but that we are saying true things about Him and that we are not propagating error about Him. And so if there is no resurrection then the apostles and the Christian church have lied about God through the ages, and all of us are in very big trouble. Fourth, if there is no resurrection, we are still 
in sin. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You and I have no greater need in this world than to be forgiven by God for the sins that we've committed against Him. Even the most secular-minded person will openly admit, I'm not perfect. And the Bible agrees. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the Bible doesn't just let it stand there. It doesn't just let it hang or say, but if you make up for all that you've done by doing enough good things, everything will be all right. No. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, yes, you are a sinful human being. Yes, you are correct. You are not perfect. And the result of that is that you deserve everlasting, never-ending death, judgment. So you see, without the forgiveness of sins, there is no hope for anything else from God. The foundation for every other blessing from God is that God won't hold your sins against you. And everything we hope in hinges upon being forgiven. And so Paul is saying, look, if the resurrection never happened, we can't be forgiven because our forgiveness is dependent upon Christ's being alive. Romans 4.25 says, Christ was delivered up, he was crucified, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection is that which God did in Christ to deal the final blow to death itself. Jesus overcame death in the resurrection, which is the wage to be paid for sin. Jesus paid the full penalty, but he didn't remain under the penalty. He overcame it on our behalf in the resurrection. In other words, by Christ's death, he paid the penalty for our sin and he purchased our acquittal, our justification, our right standing before the Father, our forgiveness. And since that work of Jesus on the cross was so decisive, God the Father would need to raise Jesus the Son from death to defeat death, to validate a sinner's forgiveness, and to celebrate and confirm the work of justification. So you see, if there is no resurrection, that means there is no justification. And if there is no justification, we remain in sin because Jesus remains in the grave. That's a hopeless proclamation, isn't it? Without the resurrection, you are still in sin. You have nothing beyond this life to look to that you might live. Well, fifthly, if there is no resurrection, the dead in Christ have perished. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, Paul is now making an argument all the more weighty here because by calling on the Corinthians and you and I to consider, he's saying this, if the resurrection isn't true, then what has happened to all of the past generations of believers? He refers to those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, which is the equivalent of our saying that someone passed away. And the point he's driving home is, if there is no resurrection, those who have died in Christ are actually lost. If Christ was not raised from the dead and their bodies remain forever in the grave, cut off from the living God, that's where they are. 
They have perished. There is no resurrection. Jesus and everyone else perishes with no, with no hope of everlasting life. But again, even those who will deny Christianity will tell you that there's reality beyond death, right? Most religious systems are designed to give you some kind of answer about what comes next. There are some who think it all just ends, but not very many. And so you will meet many, many people who will deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but who will talk about people being in heaven and looking down on them. Where does that come from? If there is no resurrection from the dead, how does that work? How is it that there's any hope that anyone else or we ourselves will be in a position to look down on those we love? If there is no resurrection, Christians who die do so along with everyone else and are truly dead. And we can't have it both ways. We can't have it that a person is happy and peaceful after they die out of this world and at the same time there is no resurrection. Paul argues logically that we must be settled on whether or not the resurrection is true if we are to make claims about life beyond the grave. If there is no resurrection, those who have died in Christ have perished forever. Sixth, if there is no resurrection... We are most to be pitied. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now Paul gets to the heart of the matter with this very honest, very real statement. If there is no resurrection, we don't just get to shrug our shoulders in the end and say, oh well, it was a good life. Christianity was a good life, and so even though it amounted to nothing in the end, oh well, we're going and gone anyway, so who cares? It was a good life to be lived, and I lived it. That's not what Paul says, is it? No, listen, do do you think Paul's description of the Christian life would be that it is the good life? He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was left for dead, he was imprisoned for his faith in Jesus. So I don't get the impression that in the end, Paul would just say, it was all for nothing, but it was a good life. No, Paul says, listen, if this is all that we believe, and it's all a big lie, we're a bunch of fools. Our faith is foolish. Do you see that? We're not able to just say, oh well, because... This isn't an oh well kind of thing. We are to be pitied above all men because we've staked our hope and our lives on a lie. You think it's ridiculous that someone will blow themselves up to be with 72 virgins on the other side? Paul says that's not as stupid and foolish as believing this if it's not true. You see, we might dig and dig and dig for gold that we thought was there, but in the end find out none of it is there to begin with. And if that's the case, then there's more at stake than a lot of money in stock prices. We're talking about the eternal state of our souls. And so we don't just say, oh, well. No, we're fools, worthy of ridicule, worthy of mockery and pity, because we could have been giving ourselves and our time and our resources to so many other things. We could have used our time to do more work or enjoy more play. If there is no resurrection, you, Christian, are a fool for believing there ever was. 
Well, lastly, Paul makes this point, that there is a resurrection. And so, in Jesus Christ, we have life. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the glorious reality of what Paul is presenting here is that our preaching is not in vain. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul asks, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? We don't believe in vain, for for faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is a gift given to us by grace. It is evidence in our lives through new affections, new desires, and love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. When we proclaim the resurrection, we are not misrepresenting God. No, we are giving God all of the glory and all of the honor that He deserves for being far greater and far more powerful than any human mind could ever grasp or imagine. For those who are in Christ, we are no longer in sin because Christ has raised them from the dead. And for all who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, and so we have no need to fear death. For those who fall asleep in Christ, say joyfully and say faithfully with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So brothers and sisters, we need not be embarrassed about our faith. We need not be embarrassed about the resurrection. We need not be ashamed when the resurrection is mocked and ridiculed by the Discovery Channel and by the world because we don't have a foolish faith. We have glorious resurrection life. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Mary Baker Eddy, not Joseph Smith, not Walt Disney when they thaw him out. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And so everyone everywhere has to do something with that claim. We can't just ignore it, and we can't just sit on it and pretend it's not real. Everyone who hears of Jesus' resurrection has to make some kind of judgment call regarding its authenticity. And for those who would deny such a claim, Paul actually anticipates that in prior verses. He knows that someone's going to say, Paul, prove it. And he says, okay, how about this? And I encourage you today to read all of chapter 15 in its entirety and talk about it with your family. He gives this rundown in verses 3 through 8 that Jesus appears to three different groups or kinds of people after his resurrection from the dead. The first group he appears to is the central authority figures in the church. You see Peter, you see the twelve, you see James, and you see all the apostles. He appears to all of them immediately after being resurrected from the dead. The second group of people that he appears to are large numbers of followers and groups of people all at the same time. Again, we see the twelve, and then the Bible talks about 500 brothers who were there to see him. 
and all of the apostles. Why is this important? It's important because it wasn't just one guy saying, hey, I saw Jesus. No, there were many, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses all in the same place at the same time seeing the same Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Paul himself. For Paul, this wasn't just something he had heard about and decided to write about. No, he experienced it himself on the road to Damascus and more, likely, uh, more than likely for three years afterwards in the desert. So what's the point? Most of these eyewitnesses were still alive at the time of Paul's writing 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why does that matter? Because Paul is telling all of his readers, you don't believe me about the resurrection and the fact that Jesus was walking on the earth after he was crucified and dead in the ground for three days? That's fine. You don't have to believe me. No problem. Go and ask all the other people that were there as well. And so critics might say, yeah, well, these men were liars. Really? How many people do you know that are lying, knowingly lying, and that they will die for that lie. These are men who were serving the poor and needy and widows and orphans and outcasts, so their lives show nothing of their wanting to be greedy or power-hungry or after fame and fortune. These are men who suffered. These are men who were on the run. These are men who were hated and despised and were murdered in poverty and in shame. Why? Because of what they saw and what they experienced, and what they knew to be true, and so they proclaimed. They were killed because they, not because they committed a crime or because they got in a fight. They were killed because of what they believed, and because of what they saw, and because they turned around and made it known to the world. You see, Jesus was not in hiding after his resurrection. Jesus was alive, and he was walking around and he was visible to the public. Everyone had the opportunity to verify that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And some others might say, well, these were all his friends. Maybe they were acquaintances. Maybe they were his family members. Perhaps they were predisposed to eagerly yearn for the coming of Jesus from the dead. Maybe they worked it all together for their heart's longing because they really wanted Jesus to raise from the dead. Maybe they made this up. And, and hundreds of thousands of people were all in the lie together, and maybe they all suffered for no apparent reason than to hope that maybe someday all of their dreams would come true. Now, as ridiculous as that might sound, let's just say it's true. Let's just pretend that's accurate. But you still have Paul saying, I saw him too. So let's think about this logically now. Consider who Paul was. Paul was not an acquaintance. He was not a friend of Jesus. He was actually one of the biggest enemies of Jesus there was. He hated Jesus with a deep hatred, unlike the kind of hatred anyone has for another person. And he despised Christians. One of the first introductions to Paul in the whole Bible in the book of Acts is where he's overseeing the murder of a Christian named Stephen because Stephen worshipped the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul's mission, his reason for living, was to murder people who worshipped the risen Lord Jesus Christ until something happened. What was it? He saw the resurrected Jesus. And once he saw Jesus, he was restored to life. 
You see, Paul was struck with the irrefutable fact that Jesus was and is God who has taken away sin and conquered death and deserves our worship alone. He was radically transformed, and then he suffered greatly all for one reason. He wouldn't stop talking about this Jesus. And, and Paul is saying this, I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't have this kind of change of heart and change of mind and change of life if it weren't actually true. What, why would a man like Paul tell a lie that was absolutely opposed to everything he said and did and lived his life for in an instant. It didn't profit him at all. No fame, no money, no glory. It brought him all the exact opposite. He gave everything up and was absolutely transformed because he had an encounter with the living Christ. Because Christ did raise from the dead. And there were many stories just like his to tell it. Sam Storms writes this. He says, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Putting my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is not as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and his bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the laws of physics, nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. Friends, if the tomb isn't empty then you need to ask yourself, what am I doing with my life? If the tomb isn't empty, it's not that it's all no big deal. We don't just say, oh well. If the resurrection never happened, those of us who put all of our hope in Christ are the most to be pitied on this earth. We've wasted our time and our lives with a foolish faith. So it's really the most important question we can ask. Did Jesus Christ come alive from the grave? What about you? How do you answer that question? Friends, I'm here this morning to tell you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and the Bible has given ample evidence to prove it. And I'm the first to admit that the Bible doesn't always give so-called evidence to all of the claims that it makes, nor do I believe that it has to, because it is God's authoritative, sovereign, and certain word. However, in this matter, in this issue of the resurrection, there were plenty of opportunities to refute it. And I believe the Lord inspired the text in the way that he did to make it absolutely certain that we, as we look at the text, this thing that is of first importance will not pass without our having confidence in its truthfulness. Jesus Christ rose from the dead that we might have life. We're not mining empty land for a lie. We're living upon a glorious truth that will bring us safely to the other side of the grave. You and I can live forever with Christ because Christ defeated hell and Christ defeated death when he was raised from the dead. What about you personally? Will you be raised from death to life in Jesus Christ? 
If you put your faith in Him, if you look to Christ, you too can live forever and ever a glorious resurrection life. Amen.